I invite you to turn your Bibles this evening to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Uh, Here, as I read from God's Word, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. For myself, I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was mist, vapor, and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in wisdom than in, I'm sorry, there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his head, eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Oh Lord, would you, even now as we seek to open your word to those books that belong to um, the literature of wisdom. That we would see the gift that wisdom is and how it ought to be used. It is not to be used by us as a means of gaining for ourselves leverage and power against you or nature. 
but to reveal to us our proper place and how it is that we are called to live as those who are your beloved creatures, fit and made for love and good deeds, but only this through Christ who redeems us. And so, Lord, may we seek wisdom, but above all, may we seek Christ and His righteousness. We ask all of this in Your name. Amen. I remember growing up and wanting so much the things that belonged to the next stage in life. I remember being an awkward middle schooler. I was an awkward middle schooler. I remember being a freshman in high school and seeing the senior girls in my youth group and thinking, why can't I be a senior? And then I became a senior. And I thought, why can't I be a college student? And then I became a college student. And I thought, why can't I just graduate and make a lot of money and have a wife and children, and I graduated, and I went and did a couple years of missions, and that same desire remained. And then I found a beautiful woman. I got married, and I've had children, and I think, man, I wish that I could start again with better perspective, just to not constantly miss the moment for the things that I'm desirous to have? Why can't I be content with my circumstances? And I remember being a young man and going and having dinners with my dad. And when I would sit down with him, I would, I would genuinely wonder, how did you do it? Can you give me some sort of secret understanding about how to make good decisions and not be such a a knucklehead. And my dad would give me advice and I would look at him and go, that's it? No. No. That can't possibly be it. And it was either disappointing or it was simple to the point of absurdity and yet his counsel has remained true. And I find myself saying the same thing to my children. And I can imagine my children say to me, What? That's, is that all there is? You want me to learn myself? I have to go through the same things you went through? Can't you just give me a shortcut like the lollipop on Candyland where I can bypass that whole sort of part of my life of misery and pain? And no, no, you can't. This is what Solomon is telling us. He's telling us the way things are. And I think oftentimes when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we are very much like petulant children who just don't want it to actually be the case. And so we say, well, Solomon is the one that's having the crisis when what he's doing is he is holding up the mirror and saying, you're the problem. No, no. It can't possibly be me. It cannot. And yet, time and time again, wisdom literature tells us that he who dies with the most toys still dies. 
that God says one thing, but it looks like another thing may actually be true. That there is, in fact, no way to escape the monotony of all of it. And so, Solomon continues to outline, to chronicle for us, his biographical journey in seeking for something that rises above the status of being under the sun. Does he succeed? That's the question. Two points that I want to make this evening. Number one, seeking joy. And number two, wisdom as leverage. Seeking joy and wisdom as leverage. Now, in this first section, verses 1 through 10 or 11, Solomon talks about his life as the king. Some of the things he did were good, some of them not so good. It's not prescriptive for us to go out and seek concubines, for example. But there's nothing wrong with building gardens and even building something and putting your name on it. Solomon is not going out with absolute folly, but in wisdom, as we see in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. It's an interesting text you could show to teetotalers. You can be wise and drink wine. The point is, Solomon is seeking pleasure. There is nothing wrong with pleasure. And in fact, in this section, it is not in any way clear that much of what Solomon indulges in is sinful. It's actually a wise seeking of pleasure. It's not an experiment. It's just life. He says, I said in my heart, come now. You ever talk to yourself? I do this at an alarming amount. As I'm working in the house, now that I work at home more often, I'm walking through the house talking to myself, and I think my wife asks me, what would you say? Nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm talking to myself. Don't interrupt my train of thought. I'm, I'm like the mad, you know, if I had gray hair, it's sort of long, it would be out here as I'm sort of talking to myself. Solomon is thinking to himself, that inner voice, come, I will test your heart with pleasure. And what he's testing is this. Is there something that he can lay hold of that will make it past the veil of life? Can I take it with me? So think of death as the unrelenting TSA at the airport. And even if that bottle is only two ounces, it's not getting through. You take nothing into the life beyond. And so Solomon, as he's looking at life, he explores tangible things. Look at verse 2. I said of laughter. It is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Now, he's not saying that it is bad. What he is saying is this. Laughter, delight, joy, pleasure runs out. Kids, when you get that bowl of ice cream and you are looking forward to it so much, and if your parents say no, what do you do? I want a dessert with chocolate syrup on it. And then you get the ice cream And you eat it so quickly, your parents look at you like, did it touch your tongue? Did you actually enjoy it? And you go, "Uh uh-huh, can I have another bowl? 
No, you should have enjoyed that one. Such is all of life. In fact, just this afternoon, my daughter had a bowl of ice cream, vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup. And I walked by, and there in that little carton was the sad little remnants that just didn't get scooped into the bowl, and it was melting. Have you seen Frosty the Snowman? That's life. Winter comes, winter goes, and Frosty becomes a puddle. (laughs) It's kind of tough. Your favorite holiday friend is just... A puddle. Such is your life. Such was your six-pack in college. It's now just hanging off the side. Right? It all just kind of goes... Laughter, joy, even building a name. You see in verses 4 through 6... I made great works, I built houses, and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He's building a city, a garden city. A city that Democrats would be proud to live in because of all the greenery, right? He was conscientious And he was a good steward of the things that God gave him. And he built all of these things. Israel in its heyday was of the greatest of all historical empires. Such that kings and queens from other nations would come and they would consult Solomon and his wisdom. He would counsel the queen of Sheba and others like her. He built all of this Not for the glory of himself, but to see, do they last? Will they endure? No. As soon as you plant a tree, what must you do? You must care for it. You must prune it. You must train it. And if you do not, it turns to nothing. It begins to rot. It grows so heavy, even under its own weight, some of these ornamental trees, that they begin to split, and then disease enters in. It all tends and trends towards nothing, oblivion. And not only that, but the testing of possessions and even physical delights. Beginning in verse 7, he bought male, female slaves. He had slaves who were born in his house. He also had great possessions of flocks and herds. He gathered for himself silver and gold. He got singers. Solomon, the record mogul. And then he had many concubines. No one had it, ever had it better than Solomon. Ever. They may have had it as good as Solomon, but never beyond Solomon. Solomon in history is in every respect one of the greatest men that has ever lived. By right of power, possessions, pleasure, wealth. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, look what he says, my wisdom remained with me. Despite some measure of deviance, what we see in verse 8, I think we can all agree, getting many concubines is an immoral violation of God's will. 
and word. But the rest of these things are simply the means of establishing a kingdom, a name, a society. And whatever he got, or whatever he wanted, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He never missed a Black Friday. Never. He was ready. If he wanted something, he took it. Not, I don't mean he stole it. He got it for himself. He had no problem paying for it or building it or growing it. All of these things. And yet, what does he call it in verse 10? Toil. Toil. It's work. It is not easy being rich. Now the poor will say, I don't believe it. <laughs> Try it. The weight, and not just the wealth, the responsibility to be a king of a nation. And he looks at all of these things and it's toil. He tested the limits of power and control. He became great. Whatever he desired, he got it. No one has ever had it better. Verse 12, what can the man do who comes after the king? What I mean by that is this, you and I will never have it as good as Solomon. Think of the places that he went, the things that he saw, the experiences that he had, the food that he tasted, the wine that he drank, the beauty, a full life. And yet, what does he say? It's mist and vapor. It's a striving after the wind. And ultimately, there was nothing to be gained. And you hear that and go, well, shoot. What do we do next? Because there's always the next thing. For many, this is very, very bad news. Because it shows the nihilism of seeking worldly pleasure simply for the sake of temporary pleasure. What is gluttony? Gluttony is the overconsumption of the things of earth, thinking that by amassing for yourself more of the same kind of thing, you will ultimately be satisfied. And what does it result in? Spiritual and physical sloth and fatness. It actually slows you down and weighs you down. There is great sorrow, even in wealth. In fact, he even speaks of that at the end, verse 17. So I hated life. There was a grievousness to this because at the end of all of his searching, he realized there's nothing. There is nothing of this earth that can go through the detector at the airport that you have to go through to get to the life that is to come. It all gets claimed. He considers this pursuit in verse 11. I considered that all my hands have done, the toil, the toil, and all of it was mist and vapor and a striving after the wind. Now here's what we need to see. It's not whether or not that it's okay. It's just the way it is. 
Solomon isn't passing moral judgment on the reality of it. He is simply saying, this is how it is. Solomon, who is the wise king, who has lived a life that is more full and glorious than we will ever live on earth, is telling us it's not worth it. Not the pursuit, but to think that even in the pursuit or even in the achieving of the pursuit, you will have something more at the end of it than you had when you began. Maybe this is one of the reasons photographs are often so precious to us. I remember that trip to Europe. I can't go there now. When will we ever get to go back to Australia? And they're going, when will we ever get to leave? It's just a holding on. I'm not saying don't have photographs. I'm saying let's at least understand the power of the psychology of those, those little snapshots. I mean, I look at my little children and all the sort of photographs that we've had at Christmas. And I look at those photographs and go, oh, so simple back then. But you know what I was saying when I was then? I can't wait till they get older and move out of the house so I can just be with my wife. (laughs) And before I know it, my grandkids will be in college and married themselves. And I will look at my life and I'll say, wow, that was fast. What happened? It's just like beating after the wind, (laughs) hurting butterflies. And what a good guide Solomon is for us. He tells us the truth. In in the pursuit of joy, he tells us, you know what? None of it lasts. Are you sad by that? You should be. You should feel a twinge of sorrow because what that is, is the old man dying. John Calvin speaks of the heart of Christian discipleship is cross-bearing, self-denial, and meditation on future life. The problem is when we begin to do those three things, it inevitably causes the connection that we have with the pleasures of this world to be stretched to the point of breaking. And that feels weird. It can create a kind of panic experience. Because we are content as sinful creatures to sort of just go after the same thing over and over again because it's what we know. A dog will return to its own vomit is what it's like when a sinner returns to their sin. That is vanity. Now let's look at the second point. Wisdom as leverage. So having looked at all of this pleasure stuff, having gone through and lived a life where he was really denied nothing, he then turns to consider wisdom and madness and folly. But in this way, wisdom as a tool, perhaps, to not have a life under the sun. Maybe it is through wisdom that I will gain some insight into how to wrench... life into what I want it to be for me. Now, oftentimes we treat wisdom as a kind of decoder ring insight into the stuff of earth. 
Give me some kind of counsel that will unlock a higher understanding and a better life. Listen, there are people that make millions of dollars a year fooling you into thinking that what they have to say will make your life better and it isn't the gospel. I'm talking about the Tony Evans types. Now, I'm not saying he's an antichrist or a false prophet or a false teacher. What I'm saying is that sort of genre of guru, personality-driven counsel is very man-centered. Only you can make yourself happy. I heard that the other day from someone who was selling something on YouTube. I just thought that was funny. Whenever he hear a capitalist say, only you can make yourself happy. And then my que- second question is to him, how do you do that? And you know, he would say, by surrounding yourself with sustainable products. <laughs> and I'd say, you mean you do need that stuff to be happy? Well, no, no, you just need to be content. Well, with what? Overly priced boutique clothing. Well, okay. And this cycle continues. And the cycle is this. Even wisdom, we often treat like we do wine. We think that in pursuing um, some form of knowledge, what we will do is we will sort of wrench life into another kind of thing altogether. We will mutate it so that at least we, we, will experience something other than vapor and mist under the sun. But what does wisdom do? It isn't just grip it and rip it. You know what I mean? It's eyes open, seeing the world for what it is, and then confessing your sin before God and saying, Lord, I am a worm of a man. I am a man of unclean lips. Make me of some use to you in whatever fashion you deem fit and with whatever life you've given me. Solomon is talking about wisdom as madness and folly. Not biblical wisdom. But a kind of natural wisdom. Now, wisdom, to be sure, is greater than folly. It's better when your parent says, don't touch the eye of the stove, to listen, than it is to touch it and say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, right? There is circumstantial evidence for that. But wisdom is not the gift of God given to men to get them out of the life that He has called them to. It is is madness, it is folly to think that wisdom will give you an ultimate advantage while on earth, except for this. Wisdom is an advantage, but it does not look like it. So let's go to Psalm 73. This is one of my favorite psalms. This is the greatest argument from Scripture in terms of the practical reason why you should be in worship. Asaph is in verses 1, 2, and 3, envying the blessing of the wicked. And he says, I almost became a backslider. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is myopic in his vision. 
He says, yeah, God is good, but not to me. That's not my experience. What I have experienced is when I look at the world and I seek to reconcile the world the way the world is with what God has said, it appears this way. The wicked are flourishing, they're wealthy, they're attacking the righteous, and there is no one to save them. And then Asaph goes into the court of God, the sanctuary. So when he sought to understand like Solomon, to understand why things are the way they are, this is what Asaph learned, verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Does it feel that way to you? Why do children die? Why do their lives, why are they snuffed out ever before they grow old? Why don't we all make it to a ripe old age and die painlessly in our beds? Why do we lose our jobs? Why do we get in car accidents? I mean, why do any of these things happen? It seemed a wearisome task. Why was it wearisome to Asaph? Because he's lost sight. He lost sight. He lost God-given wisdom. Until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That's faith. It is a confidence that is built upon not what is seen, but what is said by God. If we are using wisdom as leverage, we are not using wisdom as it has been given to us by God. Because if we are using wisdom as leverage, our aim is still a wretched, wicked, impermanent aim, and that is to get out of the vanity and the vapor and the mist of it all. To try to seek to, to, to of our own accord, our own power, remove ourselves from the difficult paradox of God's promises and the world of the way it is under the sun. And Solomon says... It's madness. It's crazy. You can't do that. All you can do is this. You can look at how everyone's end is death and say, I understand that. The wise and the fool, they all die. They all die young. They all die old. They all die with wealth. They all die in poverty. It doesn't matter. It's madness and folly to engage in seeking to understand why. This is why God never answers Job's question, why? Because Job is a wisdom book. And what God is teaching Job and us through Job is that there is a God who stands behind all things and is providential and powerful over all things. And this is our confidence He does all things well. And He has sent His Son into the world to redeem sinners. And that one day we will be resurrected in the last day. And the rest is up to God. It is better, but only when perceived by faith. The world, life under the sun, often presents a world that might drive us to discouragement and despair. And even then, what do we do? Sometimes we just give up wisdom. 
because we can't conform it to our selfish needs. And so then Solomon looks even at death. And I said, verse 15, halfway through, I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Wisdom doesn't extend your days. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Now we must remember, Solomon has not lost his faith. He is applying wisdom. He is working us through the exercise so that by the end of this section, what we are saying is, there is nothing that is able to save me from life under the sun Save the one who dwells upon the throne above the sun. This is what Solomon is doing. He is taking the psalm, Psalm 49. We sang this not too long ago, or either read it. I can't remember which one. It all kind of runs together over time, the things that are in the elements of our liturgy. But in Psalm 49, the sons of Korah, who were commissioned by Solomon's own father to write psalms in the temple, And Solomon grew up singing all of these psalms. And I remember someone commenting the other day, the difference between psalms and hymns is when I come to theology I don't like in hymns, I stop singing. But when I come to theology that I don't like in the psalms, I have to sing. And I learn something from it. Psalm 49 is the doctrine that Saul, uh, Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes 2. And in this, we read, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. This is verse 7. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. At some point, someone else will manage all of your wealth. And here's the thing. Usually the people that manage it second do a much worse job than you did going down the line. I hate to say it. Just look at the way we've squandered liberty. And even our nation, that great gift that has been given to us. It happens. It's the cycle of it all. I remember one seminary professor saying, every denomination ultimately goes liberal. And I thought, never. Never the OPC. I wasn't in the OPC, but I've said that. But of course it's going to happen. It would happen. It can happen. So what do we do? Well, we seek to apply wisdom. We seek to honor the Lord with our lives. But we also understand that what? Death comes for us all. And so, here is what you ought to do. Well, let me say what you ought not to do first. Do not covet the life of the king, the traveler, or the wealthy. Don't do it. Solomon has encouraged us. 
What can you do who comes after me? Nothing. Nothing. What has Bezos done that Solomon hasn't done? Okay, he's sent a rocket ship up into space. But what is that? What does that avail him? Columbus sailed across an ocean hundreds of years ago. That was as imposing a task as sending a rocket into space. In fact, in many ways, it was a far more daunting task and far more deadly. Solomon sent all envoys to the furthest reaches of earth. Do not covet the life of the king for this reason. If I only had that, that thing right there, maybe my life would not be so short, temporary, miserable. Because you know what happens when you get that? You know how this works, guys. The pay to play. You've got to put another quarter in the machine to play again and again and again. And it steals and sucks the joy from your life. Why should you envy the wealth of the wicked when Solomon says to you, it's gone. It's gone. But rather, do this. Listen to the one who has given you an undistilled reflection upon what life is really like. And who gave Solomon this wisdom? Christ, the eternal Logos. And what does Christ say? If any man would be my disciple, let him do this. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christ is, in essence, saying this. Don't even play their game. Is this not what Matthew 5 is? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Lay up that which moth and rust cannot destroy. Listen to the one who has given us an undistilled reflection upon what really matters. Let's pray.